Lord, we long to see. I ask that you would give us our sight, that we might see Jesus, and that seeing him, we might worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning again and welcome. If this is new to you, Trinity Church is new to you or church is new to you, um, it's great to have you here. I really do hope you feel at home, hope you feel like part of the family. Uh, this is uh, a growing family and we anticipate this family will continue to grow. But as Amy was saying, um, in connection with the meals and these interest groups, our hope is that as this family grows, as it gets bigger, it would also get smaller. So our intention here is to create spaces where everyone can experience God and can grow in relationship with other people. Please don't miss that opportunity. We've had a number of people over the course of our history, of a two-year history as a church, asking for these experiences. Here they are. You cannot blame us that they didn't come. Here they are. Use them. Make the most of this opportunity to connect with other people. Some of them start this week, so get there for, for week one. You won't regret it. I had the, I'm not sure it's a pleasure, I had the experience this week of having an eye test. Now, I was trying to think about it. I only ever remember having one eye test in my life uh, before this point. It was when Amy and I were in America about a decade ago. I don't know what piqued my sort of interest. I don't know if I'd been, uh, I'd, I don't know, been on a, a website and sort of subliminally marketed to or whatever, I'm not sure what it was, but I just thought, you know, I need to get an eye test. I haven't done it for at least 10 years and I don't ever remember having one before that. So I went into a particular high street uh, optician, naming no names, um, but, uh, and had an eye test. Now, it was an interesting experience. It was new. They, they do this thing, when, apparently when you're over 35, which I am now, uh, they... You get, you get the experience of having air puffed into your eyes. And if you've had that, it's incredibly uncomfortable. And what it made me think is, what is it about the under 35s that means that they can't experience this too? So if, you'd like, if you're under 35 and you'd like to do that, come over to me after I'll blow in your eye. <laughs> anyway, it happened. Uh, by, by the way, guys, I've got 20-20 vision. However, there is a however. I do have astigmatism, which means that, um, or I, how do I say that? Astigmatism, thank you very much. Which means that the, my eye isn't entirely spherical. It's a bit more like a rugby ball. And that means that the, the, the light doesn't focus exactly where it should. Which means my vision, despite being 2020, is not actually perfect. So I bought the cheapest glasses available. <laughs> and wandered off uh, into the night, hazily looking around. Uh, and it struck me uh, that it was significant. that I, I, I didn't know I had any issue at all with my sight. I've never known. I've never really had a problem. It's not like I can't read certain things. I do notice later at night some problems and all that kind of thing. But I don't have a problem. But it struck me how important, as I was thinking about this, how important the gift of sight is. And how if you're not on top of it, your sight can, can sh subtly shift over time. And maybe an incremental shift over time, over the period of a long time, can actually lead to significant impairment, even blindness. You need somebody to help you with your sight because you need to see. Your sight is significant. It's very important. We've been in a series on vision, the vision of this church. And vision, of course, is just another word for sight. Our intention here is to lay out before this church, before this congregation, what it is, the sight, the picture of a future 
that we want to see. What is it we want to see? And what we want to see is a church on fire. And sometimes we can sort of trot that phrase out like it's just some, you know, should have gone to Specsavers or whatever, just some marketing slang. I'll just let the game get like, let the cat out the bag there. Other opticians are available. We can trot it out as if it's some kind of marketing speech, but think about that, a church on fire. It speaks of vigor, vitality, and passion, and life. We need life in our churches, don't we? So many of our churches, you think about the church day, and what you don't think is passion, fire. Why not? Why would the people of God who have Jesus, who have been given the Holy Spirit, not be alive? Why are we so dusty and grim? And, and this is terrible, boring. <laughs> How has the church become boring? For God's sake, how are we boring? We want to see a church on fire. We long to see a city alive. And this is as much about seeing as anything else. And I think that what we've done as the church over a period of time is to lose our focus. We've lost our focus. We're not focusing on the right things. We need a, we need, I don't know, we need, we need help. And we're talking here at Trinity about a rhythm of life, a rule of life, if you like, that helps us get refocused. And we've said, we want to, we're going to continue to say this, we want to come, serve, belong, give. These are some of the rhythms, come, serve, connect, sorry, give. These are some of the rhythms that are going to enable us to stay focused on God. Connection, we said, is, as Amy said before, we connect as the one, we connect as a few, we connect in company, and we connect in these gatherings as well, as many. But I want to focus for the next two weeks on this particular rhythm of giving. And as I do that, and even as I was preparing, I became aware that actually, if you've been here for the full duration of two years, you've probably heard us talk about this once or twice, maybe. But if you're, if you're new here, you've probably not heard us say anything about giving or about money. It's not really about money, actually, this week. Next week, uh, it's not really about giving, it's about money. Next week's going to be a bit more about giving. But you've not really heard us talk much about this. And yet in the scriptures, we see that the area of money and finance and our connection to it is one of the key areas of Christian discipleship. We have and we would be letting you down if we didn't speak about this and if we didn't speak very plainly. And today what I hope to do is to speak very plainly about the issue of money, the area of money. Because it's about seeing God. It's about seeing God. And I'd love to confess at the beginning if I can. And my confession, I've got twofold at least confession. My first confession is that this hasn't been an area for me uh, throughout my life of ease necessarily. I don't come here this morning as the expert. I come here wanting to grow. However, God has liberated me significantly. And I think back how I was 15 years ago and how I am now in connection with the area of money. I am a different man. I need to become increasingly a different man again and again and again. But I have seen breakthrough in this area of my life. And I want that for you. And I speak today as your pastor wanting that for you. I want you to have freedom in the area of finance. That's what I want. The second confession is that there's been a temptation this week to make this into some kind of compelling sales pitch. 
to make you, uh, to persuade you and to get you into new rhythms of generosity and giving to this church. Because we do need that. And we'll talk more about this next week. We're not funded externally. There's no, the, the, the funding for this church is in this room. So there is a need there. But I actually feel to do that, to focus on that this week would be a mistake. In fact, it'd be more than a mistake. I believe it would be a sin. Because my job here and Amy's job here as the leaders of this church is not to build an organization. It's to lead you into a deeper communion with Christ. And unless we address the rival God of money, that is not going to happen. And that's why we're going to have this conversation today. And it may not be easy. Sometimes the gospel wounds us. And that wound when it's provided and given by Christ, will be our healing. And that's what I long for for us. So I want us to rethink today what surrender might look like in this area of our lives. And we come, as we do that, to the church in Laodicea. Let's see how we get on with the slideshow today. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. These are the words... Of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, or cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out my mouth. The context here is that John, on the island in Patmos, is receiving this sort of divine download. And he's presenting this divine download, this open vision from God in which he meets Jesus and Jesus speaks. He's presenting it in letter form to seven churches that he probably had some kind of oversight for. And this is to the church in Laodicea. And it acts, I think it functions today for us as something of a case study. And what I want to use it for is something of a case study as to how we should be challenged today. So let's begin with Laodicea. Where is it? What was it? Well, Laodicea was the first city the most prominent city in a certain area, the area being the Lycus Valley. And it was at the junction of an important trade route. So it had some stuff going for it. Firstly, it was extremely wealthy. It was a very wealthy place. It was known for three things. The first, that it was a banking centre. Think of like the city of London, the square mile, if you've been there. It was that kind of place. It was known for banking, so it's a financial centre. Secondly, it was a fashion centre. They produced, and this is fun, fun fact. It is fun here at Trinity Church, Nottingham. Here's not just challenge, here's the fun fact. They produced a breed of sheep which created or produced a particularly fine black wool. And therefore that made them a fashion centre because of their special sheep. Thirdly, it was a medical centre. It was, uh, there was a medical school and it was close to hot springs. It was known for producing a sort of eye ointment in particular. So it was a prominent city, a special place with a lot going for it. And it knew it. The people of Laodicea knew it. It was the kind of place that you were in and you would feel good about being part of Laodicea. And yet the words we get from Jesus through John are not positive words, are they? They're challenging Challenging words. These people felt a lot uh, was positive. And Jesus says, you are neither cold nor hot. You are lukewarm. And I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. These guys are the opposite of a church on fire. They're a church on simmer. They're lukewarm. They're not where Jesus wants them to be. 
Now, Laodicea lacked a natural water supply. And there's two ways you could pipe water in. You could get it from the hot spring, which is six miles away to the south. And that water would ideally be used for bathing. But if you think about it, six miles, getting hot water six miles, it's going to be lukewarm by the time it gets to the place it needs to be, Laodicea. So it's sort of no good, really, for bathing. And there was also a cold water that could be gathered from the mountains 11 miles away. But if you get the water from the mountains 11 miles away, by the time it gets to Laodicea, it's going to be lukewarm again. It's not useful for bathing. It's not useful for drinking. And so it would be spat out of the mouth. Jesus here is drawing on this picture of Laodicea's life. It's bound to be the kind of thing down the market in Laodicea you complain about. The water, it's always lukewarm. And Jesus says, yeah, just like the water, so you have become lukewarm. Your hearts aren't on fire for me. Loads of stuff going for you. And yet this one thing I hold against you, you're not on fire. What was the reason for the lukewarm attitude? You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. I am rich. I do not need a thing. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. The issue here is, is, is primarily, it's, it's an issue of wealth. But it's not just wealth. It's not just money. You see what's connected to the money is an attitude of the heart which is complacency, self-dependence, self-sufficiency. That's the spiritual condition. The presenting issue might be wealth, but the real issue is there's a connection, an inappropriate and ungodly connection to the wealth, to the riches, that have closed down and shut off spiritual vigor. I do not need a thing. Wealth has caused a a rise in spiritual apathy. And secondly, it's blinded them to their true need. Isn't that fascinating what it says here? You do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. It's pretty impressive not to realize that. (laughs) You do not realize. How often wealth does this for us? It's not just for them. The danger of wealth is always that it creates the false perception that we can make it alone. That we can go it alone. That we are okay on our own. That we don't need God's help. And when I'm talking about wealth, I'm not talking about people who are in this context, relatively wealthy. I'm not picking on people who have savings or cars or whatever else. The truth is that we are all wealthy. We're all wealthy. By any historical measure, we're wealthy. We have, many of us have something called disposable income, which was unheard of. Unheard of throughout history. When Jesus prays, tells his disciples to pray, you know, um, give us today our daily bread. That, that wasn't a spiritual thing. Because the whole point was that you would work that day for the bread for that day. 
a subsistence lifestyle. That was how it worked. Now today we're able to work for the bread for the next month or the next year or whatever it is. We are so wealthy. 2015, the the average UK wage apparently was around 27,000. Now I know we're not earning that, all all of us, but that was the average. I'm just saying as a nation. That puts us, if you're on that wage, that puts us in the top 0.79% globally of wealth. You are in the 1% if you're earning that or more. That's about £14.50 an hour. If you're a Ghanaian worker, you make 7p in the same time. Indonesian worker would earn £27,600 in 47 years. The average Indonesian worker. A monthly income, that monthly income of, on, on £27,000 could pay a salary of 133 doctors in Kazakhstan. We are so wealthy. We're so wealthy. We're so wealthy. And because of that, we need to be very, very careful. That the state of our heart doesn't resemble the state of the church's heart in Laodicea. We should receive this this morning. I have this week. I want you to know I absolutely do receive this as a very stern warning for me. And there are other warnings, of course, in Scripture. Here's another one. No one can serve two masters. This is Matthew 6. For a slave will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. The word there used in the original language for wealth is a word that's taken from Aramaic mammon. Some of you have heard that word. It literally means money and possessions. It's not necessarily a word with negative connotations. It's like a catch-all word. And it's the only God, the rival God that Jesus uses a name for in the New Testament. Because there's a significant hold that mammon can have on us. And he says you cannot serve it. You cannot serve God and mammon. There's a choice at the end of the day. Which one are you gunning for? Are you gunning for gold? Are you gunning for God? Which is it? What is your ultimate intention? Where is your heart postured? It's one of the key questions of discipleship. The problem isn't just having wealth, by the way. It's a question of serving wealth. But for those of us who are wealthy, and that is most, if not all of us, the line between having and serving is incredibly thin. Because mammon is a rival God. Mammon makes promises, like every God does. Every God makes promises. And what mammon will offer you, and you've heard it whispering, if you follow me, I'll keep you safe. If you come after me, I'll make you comfortable. And are there two things we want more in our world than safety and comfort? Ultimately, mammon, money, and possessions offer a rival vision of fulfillment and life. The biblical word for this is salvation. They offer a rival vision of salvation, of life and abundance. And every part of a culture is infected by this narrative. Look at, look at politics, just for a second, if you will. We're doing money this week. I'm going to talk about politics next week. Should we talk about sex? Why not? Why not? 
Let's do them all in one week. Ha 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 ha, lighten the mood, lighten the mood, lighten the mood. Ha 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 ha. Now you might think looking at our political world that there's vast differences between the political options on display. I just want to say this. Every single part of the discussion we've had on Brexit or on any other issue assumes the same undergirding principle, which is that if we have more material abundance, we will be better off. No political party is offering a fundamentally different vision of fulfillment. We just have differences in how we think we're going to become more materially abundant. There's no fundamental vision that's different, except Jesus offers a radically different vision. Why is it in politics we're having no discussion about how we might become a people of substance? A people who might be more able to love one another? When is it that a politician is going to say, you know what, we could actually make this decision and be more financially well off as a nation, but I don't think that would be good for our souls. And so we're not going to do that. Mammon makes promises, promises of safety. Mammon demands devotion. What mammon requires of us to realize these benefits is that we become enslaved to it. It will give us X if we give it Y. And so we make decisions that are against our greater interest if we're pursuing mammon. Maybe we'll, I don't know what it would be, we'd move our whole family out of a a holistic and healthy lifestyle just to get a job with more cash. Or maybe we'd stay in a job that was paying us really well, even though it was destroying our soul and our sense of vocation. Mammon offers, Mammon's offer is a false offer. Instead of security, we get anxiety. Instead of spiritual life, we get spiritual blindness. And instead of passion, we get apathy. So what can we do? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, says Jesus. By the way, if this is your first week here, you're welcome. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Hmm, yeah. I had a friend who's not a, not a believer, he's married to someone who was, and every so often he'd go to church, and it, it was always, it was, it was hilarious, it was always the giving week. And he was like, they're always talking about money! It was just when he showed up. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. I stand at the door and knock. What an offer. What an offer. Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, knocking on the door. Knocking on the door of the church and saying, Can I come in? I want to come in. I want to come in.
Is there room for me? Is there any room for me? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. They with me. That's the promise. That's the offer. And it is too good to pass up. So how do we get it? How do we get it? Be earnest and repent. Be earnest and repent. Maybe there's a, a, a process you need to go through this week. You know, look, at, look at how you spend your time. Look at how you spend your, you look at your bank balance and say, Lord is, this, Lord, is this in line with your purposes, your plans? Am I pursuing the right things here? Be earnest and repent. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The first thing we need to do is we take this inventory is to store up. Store up. Jesus says, store up treasures, not on earth, but in heaven. Now, by the way, when he says store up treasure in heaven, he's not talking about stuff just that you'll enjoy in the future. When Jewish people talked about heaven, they didn't generally mean life in the ever after. They meant the life of God here and now. So he's saying that there's ways to please God. Storing up treasure in heaven is about doing stuff that loves God and loves other people, that places other people first, that's about obedience to the Father and all those great things. He's saying when you do that stuff, you get treasure. It's heavenly treasure and you get to enjoy it then, but you'll also get to enjoy it now. And it's not the kind of treasure that you can count in a bank balance. It's not the kind of treasure you get on a degree certificate. It's the kind of treasure that is from God. Only he can give it. It's the treasure of peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the gifts of the Spirit. It's the fruits of the Spirit. It's the things that only God can give. And it's the things that make life worth living. Treasure in heaven. So start storing up. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. That's how we enjoy. That's how we respond. Store up. Secondly, we need to dress up. Dress up. What does he say? Get some white clothes to wear. The picture here, a beautiful picture of holiness. What a dusty word that needs to be dusted off and brought back out into the, into the light. Holiness. White clothes to wear. A picture of purity. Purify yourselves, he's saying. Don't wear those fashionable black garb made from that nice fine sheep hair you've got down there in Laodicea. Put something bright and shiny on. Wear some white clothes. What might that look like in this area? I say this, it will, holiness in this area will look like radical generosity. Radical generosity. Tim Keller says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. By the way, if Tim Keller agrees with you, you're on a decent path. A pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And the Christian came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave everybody their money. And so it is in the pagan culture that the church grows like wildfire. Because this radical vision of holiness, which looked like promiscuous financial generosity, caught fire. You know, Christians would be, uh, in the plagues in Rome, Christians would, would they, they, 
die because they would be the ones looking after everybody else's dying, infected, and plagued people. So it's not just financial generosity. Holiness could be, it just looks different in different areas of our lives. So we need to store up, we need to dress up, and finally we need to look up. Salve to put on your eyes so you can see. You know, at the heart of this is a, is a question of vision. And let me address you with this question as we close. What is your vision for your life? Only you can answer that. Fundamentally, is your vision more comfort? Or is it more Jesus? You have to choose. I have to choose. Why don't we stand?